today we are here with Adam Stokes. He wrote the book From Egypt to Ohio. He's known as Adam the Giant Guy. You know, we think of, you know, life and death as two completely separate things in kind of a modern mindset. You know, you live, you enjoy life. When you're dead, you're dead. There's really nothing. Um, that was the case with the ancient world. The ancient world, the ancient world, the ancient world. Life, life, death, death, death. And he found a uh, mound that was formed, that was shaped in the form of a menorah. Um, so clearly an excellent example of diffusionism, specifically Jewish diffusionism um, in the New World. Many years, Smithsonian denied that the mound even existed. For many years, Smithsonian denied that the mound even existed. That was either where Atlantis originally was, or that a colony from Atlantis, right after Atlantis was destroyed, came to that area. That's what accounts for the pyramids there. Pyramid, 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 pyramid. Egyptian-Israelite hybrid group uh, migrated uh, at various times to the New World, to North America, and that's what accounts for, in many cases, the similarities between Hopewell and Adena culture and Egyptian culture. Pyramid. 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 Some of them are imitations of earlier mounds, lesser quality than earlier mounds. And I think some of these mounds, um, like I think uh, with Chahokia, where you have multiple settlement periods, pyramid, 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 pyramid.
Adam Stokes. Adam Stokes. Hello, everybody. Fire Tribe. Welcome to From the Ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan. I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello, hello. What's good, Roman? How you feeling, man? I know you're a little down. I'm feeling so much better. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's like... um we're we're in the the good old mercury mercury retrograde right now and there's a lot of people that i know that are sick um my, my roommate just like tweaked his back too and so he's out and uh you know and and we just had the full moon and eclipse the lunar eclipse on the full moon as well and there's just a lot of energy and i was just wondering if maybe that's why i was laid out for a couple of days you know mm. it was you know, it's always a cosmic question, right? I, I have no idea, really. <laughs> Just glad oh, I'm feeling okay. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better, man. So today we are here with Adam Stokes. He wrote the book From Egypt to Ohio. He's known as Adam the Giant Guy. He likes to talk about giants. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, man. Uh, so this whole month and last month, we've been talking about ancient america trying to kind of decipher out who has been here in america which seems like a lot of different civilizations from yeah. china <laughs> to the bretonians to the egyptians to uh i mean countless right everybody. And, yeah, everybody and, and nobody like the whole it's a lie okay 1777 <laughs> okay it's not untouched land this is it's probably the most traversed land yeah. yeah ever yeah we but according we also to historians have... it's just uh everything started in 1492 and there was nothing else <laughs> before then so yeah. yeah we even have uh aztecs and uh Atzlan, mm-hmm. and uh we have uh and then so this gets into your uh book which talks about the nephites of of mormon uh religion being part of a hybrid civilization that came to America through Egypt. Uh, yep. A lot of times people will talk about this Egyptian America type of connection as if Egypt started in America and then moved its way to Egypt and so forth, or if Egypt was first and then it came to um, America and the Ohio Valley civilization. I, uh, what's the name? Uh, I the think Hopewell it's Co- Medina. Yeah, and Cahokia. Yeah. Cahokia mm-hmm. is said to be around 3,100 years old, as well as I, I guess they conclude that the pyramids are also 3,100. But last time I remember, yeah. they were like 2,500 BC, which means they'd be 4,500. So I don't really know how that quite works, but they're kind of dating it to the same time period and saying that maybe there's a parallel civilization here with Egypt and America. Um, What is your perspective on that little scenario? Well, it's interesting. (laughs) Frank Joseph has talked about this a lot in his books as well. And he says that that basically the same type of this ancient uh, air knowledge to use the fancy German term, um, was retained by the Egyptians and these other civilizations. And so this is the knowledge of, you know, how to build these pyramids. And when you talk about Chehokia or Monk's Mound, those are the same dimensions as the uh, pyramids that you get in Giza. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a connection there. It's always been my contention 
that with some of these mounds, uh, the people who built them preserved kind of this ancient memory coming from this lost civilization. I don't think it's that lost. I would say that it's Atlantis. We know exactly what civilization it came from. But when Atlantis went to craft, when everything went kaput, um, the people in Atlantis fled and they kind of diffused their knowledge throughout the world. At the same time, I think that there is definitely, especially in the Ohio region, like you said, the influence of people from the Near East um, who were associated with the Egyptians. And so that's why some of these other mounds with the burial practices in them, with their uh, celestial alignment, mirror uh, Egyptian uh, pyramids and Egyptian structures uh, so very closely. And so what I talk about in my book is that you have this kind of fusion between Egyptian and Israelite culture in the Near East, which the Bible itself seems to support with many different examples. We think of the Egyptians and Israelites as these uh, arch enemies, kind of like Thanos and the Avengers, you know, but mm -hmm. in a lot of the biblical witness, they're actually allies. And right around the time that the Nephites, um, who were mentioned in the Book of Mormon, leave to go to the New World, right around uh, the 7th century, uh, early 6th century BCE, is the time that Israel has an alliance, uh, or excuse me, the southern kingdom of Judah has an alliance with Egypt. So there's a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, exchange of ideas, exchange of theology. We have Egyptian influence on Israelite theology from the very, very beginning of biblical history with Moses, because a century before Moses, there was a pharaoh dude named Akhenaten who worshipped only the sun and brought monotheism into Egyptian culture. Now, uh, Egyptian culture later on went back to worshipping polytheistic gods, but Moses, as a member of the royal court, was likely influenced by Akhenaten. So, uh, long story short, I know I'm going kind of um, no, all around it. the world here, but this Egyptian-Israelite hybrid group uh, migrated uh, at various times to the New World, to North America, and that's what accounts for, in many cases, the similarities between Hopewell and Adena culture and Egyptian culture. How do you feel about Akhenaten and uh, the Moses connection? Have you heard anything about that? Do you think, oh, I think that so. they do parallel each other or the same person? Or Yeah, so some people, it, uh, it depends on who you talk to. So back in the 19th century, when biblical scholarship uh, started to emerge in the West, it was very popular to uh, look at the connection between Agnaton and Moses. And some people said that they were exactly the same person. And they basically date to almost the same time. I believe Agnaton is uh, 13th century mm. uh, Moses by uh, modern uh, biblical scholar estimates. Uh, modern biblical scholarship dating it um, is around 12, 1200, 1250 BCE. So they're basically around the same time. And the farther back you go, especially when you get to the BCEs, uh, things are kind of like a blur. So if somebody lives in 1300 and somebody lives in 1200, um, we know, especially with the dating system, that they could very possibly be the exact same person. Um, so uh, this was one of the arguments that was made early on in the 19th century. Um, this got some pushback, um, as you can probably realize, because people were saying, you know, if Moses got this monotheism from the Egyptians, then it's not as original as basically the Judeo-Christian tradition believes it to be. So um, 
people started to move away from that. But I'm a firm proponent of that. I, I mention it all the time in my in the Old Testament classes I teach. Um, in fact, I um, teach a high school Latin class. I think I mentioned that before. Mm-hmm. We just did a section on Akhenaten and kind of his influence oh. on the Roman world. Um, and we talked about um, we talked about how uh, how Moses. Excuse me, I had some trouble with my phone. Um, how Moses was influenced by him. So I think that definitely Agnaten's monotheism, his one worship of the sun, definitely goes on to influence Moses. And if you look at the liturgy, the Egyptian liturgy at the time, it's basically the same exact thing as if you opened up the book of Psalms and uh, read the Psalms uh, in the Bible. So um, that type of theology, Mm. uh, as you can see there, basically from the very beginning of Israelite history, uh, starts to influence influence uh, the Israelites. So it's not the case that the Israelites and the Egyptians were always enemies. In fact, before most of this time, if you look at the Abraham stories, Abraham's an ally of Egypt as well. So Egypt and Israel um, have had this close connection uh, for centuries. Even okay. with the biblical narrative too, yeah, because mm-hmm. Abraham and Moses both come out of Egypt. Yep, yep. So Abraham's all the way on the other side. He's near um, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is of Sumeria. Babylon, but he has to go through Egypt yeah. to get to uh, the the uh, quote unquote promised land. Um, so um, he's always interacting with uh, the Egyptian pharaohs. Abimelech is one of the Egyptians that he interacts with, um, and a couple other people um, as well. So yeah. Can I ask a couple of questions up in here? Uh, yeah, yeah. You got a lot of great great stuff unloading there. It's- I appreciate I appreciate the rants. I we we love it around here. Uh, <laughs> but anywho, um, yeah, there there's <clears throat> there's like this like superimposition of like biblical characters and Egyptian characters, right? And you have that too yep. with um, with Thoth and and Hermes. Yep, exactly. Uh, then exactly. I so know Enoch Dan is probably so in um, Thoth. Uh, excuse me, Thoth in Egyptian religion, who is probably Hermes. Yeah, exactly. And what about what about a connection to potentially Jesus there mm-hmm. and and yep. Hermes? Yep. Um, oh, so that's cool. Uh, you're yeah, you're yeah. into that. <laughs> I, I've heard I've heard of that. So oh, okay. Um, there's a very famous uh, in the Roman period uh, Hermes Trismegistus, um, and there's a whole collection of his writings in Greek and in Latin. Uh, when I want to geek out and just read some Greek and Latin just to kind of brush <laughs> up on things, I'll read them. And they sound very similar to the sayings and teachings of Jesus. And a lot of even the church fathers, Justin Martyr and et cetera, uh, used to make a connection between kind of the mystical tradition of Hermes Trimestigus and uh, Jesus. And in the Gnostic tradition, um, as you mentioned, uh, they're considered one of the same. Wow, that's super cool. And then my other question was going to be, you know, talking about the uh, the ancient American mound building culture. You know, there's a lot of you know mysterious kind of history with that, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, obviously there's correlations to the South American pyramid building cultures as well, right? The Aztecs Mm -hmm. and the Mayans. And I'm wondering what crossover you find between the Egyptian culture and the South American culture that leads up and to like this blend of the mound building because mound building is it's unique on its own. And it's it's it was almost maybe it's a refined process or it's a more rudimentary process. What, what do you what do you think? That's a great question. I think that the South Americans, so when we get to the Mayans and the Aztecs, I think that they're retaining because their pyramids are slightly different than the Egyptian pyramids and the purpose yes. for them. 
So uh, there's a lot of there's a ritualistic um, emphasis on with the uh, South American pyramids. And I think that comes from this again, this race memory of this lost civilization uh, that built pyramids uh, that gets kind of diffused throughout the world. So I think that's what accounts for the similarities between the South American pyramids and the Egyptian pyramids. Um, interesting because um, I think people like myself, we often draw a line between North America and South America, a line that uh. doesn't really exist. And we know that some of the later mounds, so you have the earlier mounds of the mound builders, um, this lost civilization whom I basically I, I identify as Nephites, um, the Hopewell and Azena, um, but then after them, they die out very quickly. And then after them, there are other groups that come along and try to imitate these mounds. So not all North American mounds are the same. Some of them are imitations of earlier mounds, lesser quality than earlier mounds. And I think some of these mounds, um, like I think uh, with Chahokia, where you have multiple settlement periods. So uh, like you said, Chahokia goes back to about 3000 BCE. But... Um, for at least in mainstream American scholarship, the height of its culture was really late, 11th century CE, 11th century oh. AD. And I think that comes uh, from basically South American influence. People are coming from South America, coming up there, seeing this old, basically uh, deserted mound area and rebuilding it and reestablishing it um, as a great center, as a great city. Yeah, that was kind of going to be one of my questions uh, for later was like, uh, because you talk in the book that some of these mounds go back possibly fifty thousand years, and, yeah. Uh, and but but you only put the Nephites in America in uh, around five hundred A.D. So how would these Nephilim or, or giant hybrids be part of the same culture that built these pyramids or these yeah. other mounds way in uh, ancient? Uh, yeah. Antiquity? Well, I. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that there were multiple migrations. So I think the Nephite one is where we specifically get kind of uh, oh. the Hopewell Adena culture. Okay. But we have mounds all over the United States. Um, and even, I think, in that Ohio region, we have earlier settlements of giants, of different types of giants uh, coming in um, and establishing uh, their empires there. So I think this was a route that was very well known to people in the Near East and that they have been traveling this route for basically from mm. the Near East to the New World for thousands and thousands of years. Wow. Um, but the most notable example, I think, is the Nephite, a.k.a. Hopewell Adena civilization. But there were people there before them who established their own mounds, again, from this race memory, of bo both from this race memory of Atlantis and also from uh, this Egyptian um, influence. So you'll have very uh, basically specific um, Egyptian artifacts and Egyptian things uh, that have been found at many of these sites. Frank Joseph talks about this as well in his Lost Colonies of North America. And I think that some of this isn't uh, related to the Hopewell. Some of this is from earlier Egyptian settlements, earlier Near Eastern settlements uh, into the region. Do you think that there's any type of connection between the the age of the giants and their height? Like maybe the the giants from thousands and thousands of years ago were taller, were 14 or 15 feet tall, and then they kind of started dwindling over time. Yeah. And then that's where we get to the nine to thirteen foot tall Nephites in the in the later era. I think that's exactly what's going on. Um so I've always been a proponent of this. We think of human evolution as, you know, we're the pinnacle of of uh, basically Society. humanity, 
Amen. that, you know, we started off as an amoeba. And now, you know, here we are. Uh, Adam Stokes is the pinnacle of humanity. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's gone in reverse, actually. And I always mention this, you know, Homer in the Iliad and Oz, he talks about the people of his past being stronger, greater, and taller than him. I think that we're on a gradual decline. Now, if you read Zachariah Stitchin, um, you know, he talks about the, the Sumerian kings list, mm -hmm. uh, these Sumerian kings who themselves were giants. And they lived, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. In the Bible, it's the same thing. The earliest people lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that's all mythology, especially with the Sumerian kings list. There's no way, you know, biblical scholars like to, to funk things up and, you know, say this is myth. This is just allegory. But there's really no way um, these were actual real kings, which, according to, you know, Sumerian records uh, existed. So there's really no way that you can allegorize it or mythologize it. So these guys are living a long time, but that gradually starts to decrease. And I think that we as humans have kind of de-evolved and degressed as, as, a, as a race, as a species. And we're not nearly as powerful, or as tall, or live as long as our predecessors did. Uh, what's I the, think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, I think there's a level of, uh, of the, um, the conscious field, too, that, that also is, is degraded with that, I think, you know, because there's, like, talk of the these Nephilim having uh, different heightened types of consciousness that could Absolutely. allow them to tap into the earth and grid system or mm -hmm. the earth consciousness. You know, my, my friend Greg Little talks about this all the time, and basically he says that, you know, the only people who re retain this kind of consciousness is uh, Native Americans, basically. We have lost it, you know. Mm -hmm. We don't, you know, we look at people, you know, special who have psychic ability, who have this conscious ability. Um, I talk about a little bit in my book. I don't think they built these mounds in kind of, you know, you watch the Ten Commandments or something, and it's all this slave labor, thousands and thousands of slaves. Mm -hmm. I don't think they did it. I think they did it with their mind, with mm -hmm. moving stuff, with telepathy. Um, mm. And so we've lost that ability. We don't have that anymore. So I think going back to what you said, Roman, I, th I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've devolved, we've lost in our becoming technology, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? Technologized, you know, mm -hmm. with our Apple, our iPods and everything, you know, we've lost uh, this ability, this oneness with nature that we had, and to be able to influence nature by our very minds. We've lost that over the course of many centuries. I think this kind of idea goes into the Kali Yuga, too, and how the Golden Age mm -hmm. is at the top of the circle, and then we go into the Silver Age, and we start to decline and decline and decline yeah. until we get to, I forget what the name of the thing that we're at now, but it's almost like we've devolved, 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 mm -hmm. and now there's going to be like a new awakening when we start to wake up and we go yeah. back in time. Do you think we're going to maybe get bigger and taller, too? Is that your dream, Adam? <laughs> I definitely believe it. I, I hope so. I, I could use, you know, a couple more inches myself. So um, I, I definitely believe in the yuga cycle that, you know, things go around. I mean, look at biblical history. You know, when they talk about the Nephilim, like in the beginning, the beginnings of Genesis, clearly there's a past civilization there that even the biblical scholars don't know about. Mm -hmm. But it's fallen, and it's kind of like, you know, we're back to square one again. So I think this happens throughout humanity, and I definitely hope that there's some type of awakening because we're, we're crap, we're crud right now. <laughs> it leads me to this other type of, like, uh, thought pattern that I've, I've had before where, you know, okay, obviously we've gotten shorter as a species, right? And, you know, <laughs> obviously socially inept and consciously un unaware of a lot of things, but... Um, you know, 
and then hairless too like maybe potentially we're we're getting less hair yeah and it reminds yeah. me of like you know this kind of like cliche picture of like like what a, like an out an, an alien quote unquote you know i'm using my quotes here an alien would be so i'm wondering if it's like you know i i wonder if we we are de-evolving from you know if we were genetically hybrided at some point you know with some some uh some nephilim blood or some titan blood or something and then you get so many generations away from that yeah. to become more of like naturally I guess what was already here. So we're losing like that cosmic consciousness that was maybe kind of genetically intertwined. Like, I don't know. Yeah. That we were connected with, you know, with the giants because they retained part of that. Yes. You know, as long as when the giants died out, you know, a lot of these giants, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about Atlantis, the, the giants there seem to use their powers for both good and bad. If you read the Edgar Casey readings, but they eventually became corrupted, and they brought about the, the fall of their own civilization. Same thing with the Hopewell and Adina here in the United States. So the giants die out, and with them, uh, we lose uh, this, this kind of this earned knowledge, this, this connection to nature uh, that we once had. And I think that, oh. you know, that's the case by and large for humanity, but with groups such as the Native Americans, my Native American brothers, brothers and sisters, they retain some of that connection by, you know, their relation, uh, by their interaction with the giants and the memory of their interaction with these giants, even though they no longer exist anymore. Yeah. Earlier in one of our other episodes, we were talking to um, uh, Esoteric Eddie, and he had mentioned that one of the stories of the Olmec is that they were led to, uh, like, the Yucatan area by Thoth. Like almost like they came out of Egypt also into South yeah. America. And I, when I was reading your book, I kind of noticed like a similarity there because you were saying that some scholars believe that they came, uh, that the Nephites actually went to South America or yeah. Central America, maybe yeah. and not necessarily America. But and you kind of mm-hmm. argued against that. Um, and what's interesting, it says it was like there was like a peninsula that they went to surrounded by water. And the first image that came to my mind was like Florida and how that's yeah. like surrounded by water. Mm. But that's like right there close to the Yucatan Peninsula also. Yep. So, you know, it's interesting because most uh, Mormon scholars, uh, LDS people who, who uh, study the Book of Mormon, they I'm actually in the minority here. Um, they would argue for a South American connection. So if you go to BYU. Um, out in Utah, and you ask, you know, you go to BYU Religious Department, they, you ask them, where was the book, where did the Book of Mormon take place? They would actually argue for a South American uh, connection. It's, it's interesting because you mentioned uh, Thoth. You also have a form of, with the Aztecs and the Mayans, Baal, kind of like this bloodthirsty deity who seems to be the exact same deity that we have in the Near East. Uh, the Baal that is the enemy of the Israelites. So life to mm. the prophet fights against the prophets of Baal. So definitely uh, some very, very strong diffusionist connections um, between uh, South American culture and ancient Near Eastern culture as well. So Yeah, because um, we get Quetzalcoatl, which is also mm-hmm. like a, a, a version of Thoth. Yep, who is also known as the white-bearded god, who some people believe was Jesus um, in the New World. Um, so mm. some people will say that the Book of Mormon, uh, when Jesus appears to the Nephites, that's not in North America, but that's Quetzalcoatl down in South America. Oh, um, wow. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. So many, I bet you could crack my noggin on so many Mormon <laughs> uh, things because I just, I paid such little attention to it because it gets such a strange rap, you know, like growing yeah. up here in the States, it's just like, it's just constantly just, just barfed upon. And it's just, it, it yeah. really, yeah. It, it paints inside your psyche, even though if you may not, you know, be paying attention to things like that, when people talk a certain way about a specific subject it like almost egregorically becomes that monstrous thing that they're talking about as opposed to you know you have to then wipe away all of this muck just to even see an outline of of what what the real thing is that they're talking about yeah yeah you see that right now so there's a there's a tv series on hulu right now that talks about mormon fundamentalist and you know the guys in that show are completely bat crap crazy and they're killing people mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so people think when you talk about the Book of Mormon, you're talking about all that crazy stuff. Um, and so you have to really kind of separate that. But it's kind of hard to get people to even separate that so they can see, you know, what these connections are, what the connections are between the Book of Mormon and the Bible and other ancient religious texts. It's, alche- it's alchemical, right? Like, so it's yeah. a supremely alchemical type of uh, text and I was actually going to ask you too since you said you teach Latin which is amazing there's a lot a lot a lot of pages I've had where I, I've come across and it's just like a it's from like the the 16th century and I'm just like oh I wish I could read Latin right now yeah. uh, is there a place this, uh, where you can send stuff in and, and get like interpretations back yeah, so um, one of the things I like to read, I, t- I told you I like to geek out sometimes and just read Latin and Greek texts for no reason, just to keep up with it. Um, but there's a very interesting text uh, by a guy, Albertus Magnus, who was kind of a seer yeah. psychic in the Middle Ages. Um, we uh, Albertus Dumbledore in Harry Potter is named after him, but he's one of the uh-huh. great, kind of like before uh, modern-day science, he was kind of the science textbook of the Middle Ages. Um, and a lot of his stuff deals with using the human mind, uh, with connecting to nature, um, and it's all in Latin, but it's, it's very fascinating stuff. Wow. Yeah, al- alchemical texts are like the most mind-altering to me yeah. because yeah. I'm trying to dig into this this world of the Middle Ages where like, I feel like there's just been a large, large, huge part of history that necessarily hasn't been suppressed. It just hasn't been revealed or told to us. You know, well, we it hasn't told. been translated. I mean, we've gotten, yeah. you know, since the 19th century, it's been Darwinian evolution has basically been the gospel for the West. So all these middle age, these guys in the middle ages, Albertus Magnus, um, Cornelius Agrippa, all those guys have kind of been all those alchemists, those great alchemists have kind of been forgotten. Um, and people haven't even translated their work all that much. I mean, you have to, I looked for a copy of Albertus Magnus and I had to go to the library in Princeton. There was this dusty copy from like a reprint from like the 1800s that was like falling oh. apart. So people don't even, you know, preserve this stuff very well anymore. I'm creaming over here, just hearing about <laughs> these old books. Yeah. Yeah. What it, about Roger awesome. Bacon? You like Roger yep. Bacon? Yes. Yes. So in his utopia, um, his utopian uh, writings, but he was also yeah. yeah. I I feel like I feel like I have this strange feeling that Francis Bacon, um, well, uh, uh, Manly P. Hall says that you know Francis Bacon is a pseudonym, and because he was like the queen, uh, the 
the daughter of uh god francis bacon was the son of queen elizabeth and like he was kind of a bastard child and so francis bacon in my eyes is a pseudonym of roger bacon because francis bacon also writes new atlantis or you know he was in the middle of writing and he it's just like he had all these books and every time you look up roger bacon you see the word frank you know he's a franciscan franciscan (laughs) you see franciscan roger bacon francis and i i take it out and i see francis bacon i'm like what there's a lot and especially with him he does a lot of like coded stuff uh because he was a freemason as well so there's a lot of esoteric stuff in his writings that you don't really notice unless you kind of know his historical background and then you can kind of you know see uh what what's going on um in his writings but but fascinating stuff and you know like i said we don't really we don't really see a lot of this i mean you go to Barnes and Noble in the New Age section, you'll see some of that stuff, but we've really lost a lot of that knowledge over the years, um, which is which is really sad. And that knowledge I think the Giants had, you know, that was part of their it, it was part of them the same way as we, you know, breathe air and drink water. It was a part of the Giants. Um and with them being gone, I, I think most people forgot about that knowledge. Yeah. What about uh oh sorry Dan, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to bring up Rick Osman. Do you know him? Or have yes, you heard yes. of him? Yes. Because yeah, he talks so. about like uh, King Arthur uh, and Prince Maddox being in uh, kind of the Ohio Valley area around the mm-hmm. f- same time as you put the Nephites in like that 500 period. And huh. and so this, it's interesting to me that, you know, two different sources put two different groups of people here in around the same time. And then you have uh, Burroughs Cave. And you have yep. all these Egyptian type of uh, drawings on, you know, in clay tablets and whatnot. And it, it just yeah. seems it seems really interesting. I, I think this is why a lot of people assume that this was Egypt and then it went to Egypt. Uh, you know, it started yeah. in America and went to Egypt. But but you can kind of see the cross like it, it actually came over from Egypt to here. Um, yeah. What if they're existing at the same time? Both, well, like, both remember places. with King Arthur, he is one of the last of the uh, Roman, uh, the Roman kings, the Roman uh, kind of these general kings that you have in Britain. He's kind of the remnant when Rome starts to fall. He's kind of the last remnant of the Roman Empire. Remember, the Roman Empire is heavily, deeply influenced by Egyptian culture and Egyptian society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you watch the movie Cleopatra with uh, the gorgeous Elizabeth Taylor, um, but you know, a lot of the Romans, uh, the Roman gods were appropriated Egyptian gods. Um, so um, it wouldn't surprise me if, like I said, the Nephites are just one example. We have migrations of various peoples over into the New World. Um, I mean, you have uh, you know the example that modern scholars can't deny that mainstream archaeologists uh, have to admit is, of course, the Vikings. Um, but we have a bunch of different groups coming over here. So I think the Egyptian influence uh, comes some from directly from the uh, Near East with these Egypto-Israelites, later the Nephites, who come over. But you also, also have other groups that are influenced by Egypt, such as the Roman Empire. So I think it makes perfect sense if you have an Arthurian uh, tradition in North America that's influenced uh, by, by Egyptian thought. And that's in the same area where you're finding all of these, these Egyptian things. That makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And also, they, uh, I've heard stories where they kind of relate that maybe King Arthur is almost a Jesus figure, too, and he, as his yeah. relations to, like, Ursa Major 
and yeah. as being the bear, the great bear and Polaris and uh, kind of like the, a little bit of these star myths and making the connection that, you know, he's pulling the sword from the stone because it's his rightful time to rule almost like as if he's like this Jesus figure also. And, I, I think uh, definitely for the middle ages, you know, um, the sword being pulled from the stone was kind of this hope in this return of the messianic figure of Jesus, basically returning mm-hmm. and bringing about a golden age again. I think Arthur, King Arthur embodies that. And so I think that's why the Christian imagery is so freaking strong in, uh, you know, the Arthurian legends and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's all connected. What about, um, <laughs> what about Nephilim or, or, you know, giants in more of a, uh, in, in the middle age periods, like it, like, is there a chronology that you have to maybe to a point? Because you said they they don't exist anymore, but there's a couple of like crazy cases in like places in like uh, the Middle East that some soldiers have come across. You know, yep. some the giant, hard giant. Caves. Yeah. Yep. So that was recent. Like a, that was yeah, yeah, very recent. This is a couple yeah. years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Navy SEALs dudes like, like got in a fight, uh, firefight. With these guys. <laughs> took a bunch. It took a crap load of like ammunition to take bring them down. So. Yeah, um, I would not be shooting at a giant. I, I'd be like asking him so many questions. Do you give uh, credence to <laughs> that? Do you think that's so probably trying to just try, trying just defend defend themselves? So, do you but, think that uh, actually happened, or is more of like an urban legend that got started? Because it's like you know, I have a couple of friends. Um, so I was on another podcast, and he reportedly interviewed a dude whose credentials worked out, um, who was military special forces, who was involved in that thing. Um, he gave a pretty specific story, and he was wow. definitely military. So I don't know if he's trying to get attention, which seems unlikely to me, because if this is classified, he could be in big trouble. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, there's some—I mean, there's a lot of—those caves in Afghanistan are completely unexplored. Nobody knows what the heck is in them. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, talking about, you know, what happened to the giants, yes, most of them died, were killed off. But I think a lot of them, you know, fled to, you know, these regions that were deserted. Um, even I think I mentioned last time I was on the show, um, the inner world, you know. So I think, you know, those sightings of Bigfoot that you occasionally get, I yes. think those might be remnants of the giants as well. So I think, you know, they they were they're they're hiding around. If there are any left, which I think there may be a few a few of them are, uh, they're hiding in some some really obscure places. With the medieval myths, it's uh with the medieval legends, it's interesting because in Europe you get um, a lot of stories of people fighting giants. So you have uh, Jack and the Beanstalk in Irish legend. You have Gog and Magog in uh, British legend. Um, there's a recent book, Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman wrote it, um, about the giants in, in Britain. Um, and this is all middle, middle age tradition. So the giants, I don't think, you know, die off right away. Um, you know, some of them are still around. Individual giants still seem to be around and causing trouble and uh, resulting in the, these legends that you get in European mm-hmm. culture. Definitely winning uh, WWE championship belts, for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Andre. <laughs> Andre the Giant. Um, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So uh, you talk about the idea of America and how they've been finding all of these giants' uh, bones and everything, and they're finding them either inside these mounds or around the mounds, and so yes. that kind of gives credence to the fact that maybe the, that the giants are the ones responsible for building these mounds. And how how tall are these giants that they're finding in in these 
uh, type of uh, burials near the mounds and in the mounds. Yeah, kind of like your tallest basketball player today, seven to nine feet. Okay. Um, you have some stories. Um, there's a guy on uh, shout out to Giants of uh, North America on Instagram. He gives uh, basically detailed uh, newspaper uh, records. Uh, written records uh, from the 19th century, various newspaper clippings of the giants that they're finding. So some giants they'll find are really tall, up to 13 feet. For the mounds, most of these giants are seven to nine feet, uh, significantly taller than the indigenous population. We know that because they buried their servants with them. Um, so uh, just like the Egyptians did. So again, an Egyptian connection. Um, so they buried their servants with them who are significantly smaller. But the giants seem to have been uh, at least the leaders or worshiped as gods uh, by whatever community uh, they were they were controlling. Yeah, excellent. Um, so then, so then, uh, do we have stories uh, from uh, Mormon tradition of giants in America, or is there any type of things that show that there's a a, a connection with Mormonism in these giants? There are a couple of really interesting stories. So in Mormon tradition, you get the uh, legend of the three Nephites. The three Nephites were disciples of Jesus um, who decided uh, to um, basically, when Jesus preaches to the Nephites, to uh, the ancestors of the Native Americans, Jesus says, you know, I got to go back up to heaven um, and you guys are going to spread my message. And then three Nephites say, look, we don't want to die. Uh, we just want to go around the world just spreading your message. So Jesus, according to uh, this legend, it's actually, the story is actually in the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi. They are given eternal life, and apparently they have these superpowers, and they can't die. They can't be killed. If you try to kill them, um, nothing will happen. Uh, but they travel around, and um, sometimes it says that they're seen by people. Other times they're not seen by people, uh, but very kind of similar to uh, the mysteriousness of, of these giants that we get in uh, folklore and legend elsewhere. So uh, very interesting. Yeah. So we have a giant connection, obviously, in America. We have a giant connection all around the world. Um, how do we get to the Semitic connection between these giants that were, or the, these Nephilim that were possibly in America yeah. and to uh, the Israelites and to uh, the Middle East and the Egyptian area? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that um, is found in kind of the cultural uh, evidence that we have from the Hopewell and Nadina peoples. Like I said, I linked them with the Nephites. And in many of these sites, uh, we have found tablets and inscriptions uh, that are written in Paleo-Hebrew, in Egyptian, um, in Greek, ancient Greek, um, and they also seem to depict biblical events. So uh, last summer, I had uh, a great opportunity to visit, um, to go to Fort uh, Madison, Iowa, and look at, uh, care of my friend Wayne May, look at some of what are called the Michigan relics. And these are tablets that were found uh, in the late 19th century, um, and they depict a variety of religious, uh, basically Judeo-Christian imagery. So the flood story, the Noah's, uh, the flood story, the Noah flood story, the Tower of Babel, even images from the life, um, the life and crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so uh, we see that there's clearly some Judeo-Christian connection uh, with uh, the Hopewell and Adina. Also, several of their mounds, such as the Menorah Mound and uh, the Serpent Mound, um, seem to be based on uh, biblical traditions, 
or biblical characters. So the serpent being the serpent in the Garden of Eden and the menorah mound being the, the nine-pronged menorah uh, that you get that emerges in Jewish tradition uh, during the Second Temple period. Yeah, can you go into like the menorah mound? I, I haven't heard of that. What is that? Where is that? What is it? What is the significance there? Yeah, yeah. So, um, shameless self promotion. I, I have an article about this in Ancient American Magazine. I can't remember which uh, issue of it. Um, but there was one of the earliest mounds. There was a dude named uh, Ethan Squire who was actually uh, hired by the Smithsonian and he did geological surveys of the region. This is when the United States had just been founded. A um, couple decades after the uh, Revolutionary War, so not even the War of 1812 had happened, but he was hired by the government to survey the land. And he found a uh, mound that was formed, that was shaped in the form of a menorah. Um, so clearly a, a excellent example of diffusionism, specifically Jewish diffusionism um, in the New World. Um, and uh, what happened is that over the course of time, uh, this mound was destroyed. And for many years, the Smithsonian denied that the mound even existed until recently, a couple years back, a map of this mound uh, was found in the Smithsonian. So as she existed, they acknowledge it now. If you Wikipedia, you'll find some information there as well. Um, but clearly a, um, a menorah. And it's interesting because um, I need to correct myself here. I said a nine-pronged menorah. I think it's seven-pronged which tells us exactly uh, when uh, the group that that built it uh, was around, because you don't, don't get the nine-pronged menorah until the time of Judah Maccabee. Uh, this is where Hanukkah comes from, uh, you know, with the menorah and the dreidel and all that stuff. Um, that's the time of Judas Maccabee in the second century BCE. So this had to be prior to the second century BCE, um, whoever uh, these people were who built it. And so um, that seems like, again, a connection there uh, between these this uh, Nephite migration in the 6th century. Oh, where is this menorah mound found at? What uh, state? Um, it's Ohio. It's in Ohio? Okay. Yes. What, what is the significance of the menorah in Jewish tradition? So the menorah starts off as basically a light for the temple. Um, so the flame of the menorah symbolizes God's presence. And then uh, by the time you get to Hanukkah, uh, there's the whole, uh, the oil not running, there's a whole legend of the oil not running out in the menorah. So it takes on kind of a different view um, in celebration of basically the Maccabean victory over the Greeks. So um, that's kind of the modern significance of it now. But before then, um, it would have been the menorah that's in the temple and that symbolizes uh, the divine presence. All right. And then also in the book, you talk about uh, the Paleo-Hebrew and the connections uh, yep. to some of these mounds with uh, Hebrew writing. Uh, yep. What is, what does like Hebrew writing look like? Uh, it's because so, you say it's also in, in pictographs, but it's read as in Arabic. So I, I'm just curious yeah. as to what, what this looks yeah, like. Yeah, I can definitely explain that. So if you go to, if you have any Jewish friends, um, and you go to like a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, they're going to read from something called a Torah scroll. And the Torah scroll, um, the script that the, the Hebrew is written in is going to be Aramaic script. That is the type of script that was used um, in uh, basically after 538 BCE. Let me actually see if I can grab, I can show it to you. Okay. And tell you, um, hold on a second. <laughs> I can show you exactly what I have. So, 
uh, nice thing about working downstairs in your library, you have all your books. So this <laughs> is basically Aramaic script. Yeah. And this is what modern Hebrew Bibles are written in. And that script did not exist until after 538 BCE when King Cyrus of Persia uh, lets the Jews return back to their homeland after the destruction of the temple. At that time, the Jews adopt an Aramaic script to write their um, to write their scriptures in because that's the script that the Persians use. The Persians use Aramaic. Before that time, they would have used a script known as Paleo-Hebrew, um, which is a very ancient, very arcane uh, type of script uh, for writing Hebrew. And it's interesting because both in the Los Lunas Mound, which is in New Mexico, so that's kind of a little bit away from the Hobel Nadina, but of course those people could have migrated there if they wanted to, but also in the Newark Holy Stones, which is in Ohio, right in the region of the Hopewell Nadina, we have uh, these artifacts that are written not in this uh, Aramaic script, but in Paleo-Hebrew script, which suggests that they are very old, at least before 538 BCE. Yeah, awesome. And uh, is this script without, is it without vowels still? Yes, yeah, so there's no vowels. Um, even up until, um, so we have with the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they're written in Aramaic script, but they don't have vowels on them. So the little dots and stuff underneath the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew letters are uh, vowel pointings. Um, oh. So Kamat, Sere, uh, Kibbus, um, A-E-I-O-U, uh, for example, those are, vowel, those are vowel signs. So none of the uh, relics have this, um, which is... Uh, kind of in support of their authenticity because if someone's trying to forge relics in the late 19th century, they would have first written them like this type of script and they would have put in vowel signs in them. Uh, we didn't, our knowledge of Hebrew isn't as, wasn't as good in the late 19th century as it is now. So all of this suggests that these are, these are actually authentic finds. And that's what, where the, where the uh, Semitic connection comes in uh, with, with the Hopewell Nadina. And do you know what some of these inscriptions say? Yes. So um, the new, the Los Lunas uh, stone is a paraphrase of the Ten Commandments. I actually have a translation of that that I did in Ancient American Magazine. Um, and the Newark Holiness stones uh, say um, uh, Kadosh uh, Ladonai, holy to the Lord. Um, so um, yeah, we can we can actually decipher these. So they seem to be phrases. Uh, that people uh, took with them or held with them or wore on their clothing. Uh, we have similar examples of this. Uh, mainstream archaeology uh, archaeology uh, would point this out. We have similar examples of this in finds that we found in Israel and the ancient Near East with amulets that have the divine name of God on them, Yohei Bavhei, uh, very similar things. So whatever the Jews were doing um, in the ancient Near East seems to have been what the Hope Nadina uh, were doing in North America. Excellent. Um, can, can can we get a little bit into the uh, s the history of the Nephites and uh, like uh, in Israel and whatnot and uh, the land of Canaan or yeah, Canaanite yeah. lands and and, and yeah. how that all developed? Yeah. So the Nephites are um, they're actually uh, descended from a guy named Lehi. Lehi was, according to the Book of Mormon, a prophet. Uh, working around the same time that the prophet Jeremiah was working, late 7th century, early 6th century, right before the fall of the Jerusalem temple in 586 uh, BCE. Um, so uh, we actually have 
um, what appears to be uh, evidence for Lehi outside the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's an inscription that has the name Lehi uh, that was found in uh, Israel-Palestine. Um, there also seems to be a guy in the Quran uh, hood. Um, oh, can you see me? Um, yeah, guy named Hood, H-U-D, uh, in the Quran, whose story is very, very similar to the story of Lehi, and some Mormon scholars have actually argued for a direct connection uh, between the two. Uh, but anyway, one of his sons is Nephi, and Lehi and his um, a couple of his sons and his wife, um, they leave Jerusalem right before the destruction of the temple. Um, they claim to have been warned about the destruction of the temple. So they leave, uh, they travel uh, to what appears to be, um, I, I was going to say Red Sea in Ara around Arabia. Um, I don't think that's the correct sea. Anyway, whatever sea they end up on, uh, they make a ship and uh, they migrate to the United States. Now, here's where, not to the United States, but uh, to uh, North America. Um, now, here's where the whole debate between North America and South America um, among uh, Mormon scholars takes place. So depending on the route that Lehi would have taken, he could have landed either, like you said, um, off the coast of Florida or further down in South America. And so people argue both ways. I personally, like I said, I take the North American view, um, but uh, the majority of Mormons take the South American view. Well, there has been pyramids found in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if maybe there was some sort of civilization in that in that Gulf area. Maybe it wasn't covered with water before, and maybe yeah. there is some type of civilization going on there. Because uh, in Scott Walter's uh, series uh, "America on Earth," he yeah. puts like the blue dye of the Mayans that maybe they are possibly the source was actually in Georgia. And so there, there seems to have already been a connection between uh, the Mayans and the American lands. And it almost seems like this is maybe a continuation of that same type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting with the Caribbean. Some people have even argued that that was either where Atlantis originally was or that mm -hmm. a colony from Atlantis right after Atlantis was destroyed came to that area. And that's what accounts for the pyramids there. Um, I have a very good friend, uh, Heather Arnold. You may have heard of her. Um, she does a lot of work with giants as well. And um, she lives in Aruba. And there is a big tradition of giants um, in that area. In fact, uh, the, the Native people um, in Aruba have a lot of cultural legends of these giants who were racially distinct from them, because most Arubans are um, are black, African black, um, but who were racially distinct from them, who lived in caves again, and basically had their own civilization, own society. So I think that there's a lot of a giant, giant connections down um, in the Caribbean, whether from Atlantis or whether from migration from another place. It seems like there's like a connection to, to the Titans living within the earth too. Yeah, yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? And and then this kind of connects into the giant idea as they're living in caves and and different area because you and this even connects with Bigfoot living in mountainous terrains mm -hmm. and possibly mm -hmm. living in, in caves or in inside of mountains and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I always have that question too. Are mountains hollow or are they solid inside? Yeah. I don't think they're as solid as you <laughs> think they are. No, no. Definitely. Yeah, that's There's what I'm saying. Like, we just look at them and see them, and we think they're solid. But are they? No, I, I, I sure. I mean, 
you hear all the Appalachian tales about Bigfoot. There, those those mountains aren't solid. So mm. something's in there. Something's <laughs> yeah, been lot, in there a long time. A lot of doors have been attached to them too. After the fact, like you'll go, like a lot of military bases are insides yep. of mountains and everything because they, yep. you know, just put a door on and, uh, yeah. And some some people say that they're, uh, you know, there's talk of petrified trees too, which would be pretty easy uh, to hollow out for the most part, um, yeah. which is which is nuts. I um, <clears throat> I, I, I'm curious about more about the. Uh, the the layout of these these cities and and what you think the purpose of like the uh the layout of the pyramids are like do do you do you vibe with the and the mounds the, like yeah. yeah and the mounds do like the astro theological connection to the stars and 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 if so uh why why do you think and and what have you found in your research to to lead you yeah, to I... the reasons that that's a really that's a that's a great question. Um, so about two years ago, almost, I got to visit a mound in Kentucky. I, the, my, uh, there's a church conference. Um, I'm part of a smaller LDS uh, denomination, uh, not the Salt Lake Church, but a smaller denomination. And we had a church conference there. And right down the street from the church was an Adena mound, and um, I was talking um, about it with my friend Greg Little, and. A lot of these mounds seem to have been, like you said, astrotheological, so connecting uh, the soul with the stars as the place that the soul goes when it dies. So the mound represents the progression. So you'd have a you'd have a one mound here, you have a smaller mound next to it, representing the progression of the soul, um, astrologically aligned uh, to where it's going to go uh, when it dies. Um, so a much different worldview, I always like to point this out, and I'm, I'm glad you raised this question. You know, we think of, you know, life and death as two completely separate things in kind of a modern mindset. You know, you live, you enjoy life. When you're dead, you're dead. There's really nothing. Mm. Um, that wasn't the case with the ancient world. With the ancient world, death and life went back and forth with each, with each other and were very kind of, uh, very kind of connected. And so the mounds kind of symbolize um, and reflect, I think, in a very real sense, uh, they're kind of like these these soul airports, as I like to call them, um, these soul train stations <laughs> uh, where uh, this where uh, the giants basically saw themselves as a lining up correctly for their souls to go where they die. And I think, you know, again, these are burial mounds, so you see this exactly. So when they die, they're buried in these mounds in a particular direction. Uh, to make sure your soul gets the right place up in the sky. Soul train. Uh, soul train, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what direction are these the openings to the mounds usually uh, presented as? Yeah, so or, um, where, uh, the, where the um, giants are buried, so you'll notice that um, I wish I had the book with me. Let me like see. which orientation do they face? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there's usually an eastern orientation. Um, so some mounds are aligned um, lunar, so towards the moon, and then some uh, some mounds are aligned uh, towards certain constellations. Um, I, this is something I need to. Um, I'll just say here I need to look into in more okay. depth. There are scholars who have looked into researchers who have looked into it. So Sarah Farmer um, and Gerald Farmer, 
um, they have, they talk about this uh, quite a bit, kind of the uh, different uh, celestial alignments of the different mounds. And they talk about it in much more detail and in a very well-organized uh, fashion. Um, so Sarah Farmer um, is the researcher who does that. Um, but um, in any case, the, the giants seem to have been buried in a way that directed them uh, towards uh, a particular place in the cosmos, which they thought they went to before they died, which they thought they went to when they died. Um, interesting Mormon connection here. If you read the book of Abraham and in Mormon theology in general, it's believed that when you die, if you're good, you go to a planet of your own, you occupy, you create a planet of your own. Uh, very similar, ironically, I don't think it's that ironic, uh, to the theology that seems to have pervaded the building of these mounds by the Hopewell and Adina. Hmm. That's interesting. I love that. I love that. What's yeah. their uh, connection between um, gold and the Nephilim? You know, there's the big story of the Sumerian uh, Anunnaki story and their, you know, their hunt for gold. And, you know, we find obviously gold and the humans are inseparable. It's, it's very, very much a part of, uh, of the story. But what's your belief on, on the connection with gold? I think there's a similar connection uh, with the North American giants. Now, Mind you, there's not gold in the Ohio area, um, and gold won't be found, you know, until the Europeans uh, in uh, going out west to like California and stuff. But what the what the North American giants did create, just like the Sumerians created for gold, was copper. These oh, guys loved copper. Copper yeah. was like weed to them, so they loved copper. <laughs> it was um, like so weed. Is that what he buried, said? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they buried themselves with copper. They had a bunch of stuff that was made out of copper. Uh, many of the Michigan relics are copper, uh, are copper themselves. Um, but the giants are buried with copper. Uh, they have copper all over them. So it seems to be that they tried to compensate for a lack of gold. Um, instead of worshiping gold, idolizing gold, they idolized copper. Uh, isn't the the like the tablet thing that Joseph Smith found? Isn't it gold plated? That's a gold plate. Yep. Mm -hmm. So interesting that there there'd be gold in in that part of the world if it's not even found yet, and it's mostly on the west coast, which yeah, people yeah. don't really associate with having been found yet. So yeah. so then where? But remember, um, where Joseph possibly... Smith gets the gold. The gold plates were originally fashioned and hammered in the Near East with Nephi. Oh. He gets the gold plates, and he gets the gold plates from a dude named Laban, who is this um, complete a hole um, that he has to kill <laughs> with a sword. He gets those plates; the gold plates already exist, and then he just hammers some more stuff into them. So they come uh. directly from the the Near East, which is not surprising. We have Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. There's a gold Isaiah scroll um, mm. that we have uh, with the Dead Sea community, and you already mentioned the Sumerians and their obsession with gold, the Anunnaki and their obsession with gold. Um, so um, there seems to be obsession with uh, Thoth or Mercury or Quetzalcoatl yeah. and jade or emerald, like a green yeah. color. Yeah. So even uh, though I'll... Joseph Smith finds gold plates here, they originated in the Near East. That, okay. So that leads me to this other question then. So, you know, uh, we know that the Egyptians were, you know, an alchemical uh, society. They had, you know, they had high science. Um, yeah. And then that follows through into Rome as well, you know, and, yeah. and, and to antiquity. And so I'm wondering, how does that cross correlate with the cultures here? You know, obviously, like in uh, Aztecs, um, and I just use that as an umbrella term, but, you know, the Mayans and the Aztecs and those cultures, 
they also had like mercury pools underneath their uh, pyramids and everything. I feel like they're, I think all pyramid building cultures had this high understanding um, of a secret science and alchemical processes. And then there's the tie to the planetary connections to their metals. And then, you know, our, our whole galaxy is basically an alchemical soup and the earth is the philosopher's stone, right. Or what have you, but what, what do these cultures tell us? Like what artifacts that we find that tell us that they were potentially an alchemical, uh, culture as well. So I'm trying to show you, um, I thought I had it on my desk and of course I don't. Um, but, um, there was recently a group, uh, the same group that um, invited me uh, out to Fort Madison. Uh, they uh, reconstructed a copper arrowhead. And this thing from the Hopewell and Adena. And this thing looks wow. like a friggin' bullet. Um, very advanced, mm-hmm. very uh, high, uh, high technology. Um, and, uh, I wish, wow. let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Let, let's, you could take your time. Eh? Ain't no rush. Cause we, I'd love to see that. That sounds great. Yeah. I, um, trying to look for it. Um, anyway, I, I want to, I compare that. I always compare that to this arrowhead. So this is a native American arrowhead that would have been used by the indigenous cultures, um, that were fighting, that were sometimes fighting the Hopewell and Adena. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, the Native Americans, I want to uh, just clarify this, they're descended in many ways from uh, the Hopewell and Adena. And so Hopewell and Adena technology is basically their technology. But if they're fighting a tribe with this compared to um, the copper arrowhead, which looks kind of like this, um, the uh, the copper arrowhead is going to win out. And so this is why you can see why the giants were oftentimes victorious over their enemies, over the neighboring tribes around them. Uh, but that's just one example of kind of really sophisticated technology, uh, which kind of clashes with some of the other technology in the area. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. There's, there's such a big mystery there. Uh, I, do you think we'll ever uncover it all in, in our lifetimes or are we just we just sprouting the seeds? I think we're sprouting the seeds. I mean, this stuff hasn't really been talked about all that much until recently. I mean, you have people like Scott Walter and. Uh, uh, David Childress and and my friend Dr. Little and uh, Andrew Collins to really thank uh, for you know kind of presenting an alternative view of, of American history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're trying, man. We're trying. What do you think of uh, uh, Andrew Collins' take on uh, uh, like the the Cygnus Key? His, his book talks about how the the three pyramids of Giza are actually more related to the wing of the Cygnus bird more so than they are Osiris or the, the three, the belt stars of Osiris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I Cause that's not that a I, very well uh, accepted viewpoint either. <laughs> no, no. I, I love Andy Collins is actually, he's a good friend of mine. Not, I'm he's not great. as close to him as I am with Dr. Little. Um, but he actually, if you read the Cygnus key and if you read his book, Denisovan origins, uh-huh. um, he brings uh, some biblical connections into there as well. Um, so he's actually, I, I would argue that in some ways, uh, Collins presents an argument for ancient America that's more Semitic than even myself, because mm-hmm. um, he ties that into the, to the kind of like the bird um, uh, and kind of the bird imagery that you get uh, yeah. 
the eagle like um that you get uh in, in some of the biblical text and um so it, yeah doesn't yeah, it make yep, sense exactly. too with a lot of these other cultures that are really revere revere the the bird symbolism like even we're talking about toth a little bit he's yeah. represented as mm-hmm. a bird head also yep yep and in his recent book shout out to uh to andrew um origin of the gods he starts off his book within uh ancient israel oh wow yeah yeah, yeah. that's andrew collins man. man he's he's written some 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 bangers man that uh yeah no he's definitely one of the giants you know him uh ram hancock uh, those guys. So, and I think slowly, you know, with Ramcock, Ram Hancock's um, America, BC, you know, they're trying to uh, trying to present a different narrative uh, than the one that has been traditionally taught, and receiving a lot of pushback on it as well. It's usually Ooh. a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So we've kind of traced the fact that there's ain't uh, there's giants in America. And where did you think that maybe these earlier giants came from? Because they wouldn't have had the Semitic origin if they were here between 50,000 years ago or no. between that time period, these these titans. Where do you uh, think that, that they came from? Do you think there's just giants all over back. the planet? And I think there were just giants all over This was like an ancient race that existed in, in antediluvian times? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a race that exists in antediluvian times that we lost memory of. Going back to this Yuga cycle, you mm-hmm. know, flood wiped out everything. We started over again. Now, there's a really interesting. Um, this kind of goes against the face of mainstream biblical archaeology. So, uh, we would say that you know, <laughs> the, Israel as we know it doesn't really begin with Abraham. Kind of in uh, the the fourth or fifth century BCE, so around four thousand BCE. Um, but interestingly, um, Edgar Casey, in his readings, kind of redated ancient Israel and argued that it was much, much older than biblical scholars, um, and that even uh, the Bible um, has argued for in its chrono- chronology. And he's arguing that ancient Israel goes back 20, 30,000 years. So, um, which is really interesting how he gets there. But he basically says that, you know, he, what he calls. Um, the lost tribe um, goes back uh, to about 20,000 years. So very interesting, much different chronology and dating than what we get uh, with modern biblical scholarship. Does he say what that tribe was? <clears throat> he says it's Israel. He says it's the people of Israel, but he doesn't really, I don't think he gives a specific name for it. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Um Dan wants it to be the tribe of Dan. I know I he does. Do. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. How'd you know, Roman? I know you too well, bud. <laughs> um, where was I going to go? Uh, so, yeah, we kind of talked about the ancient giants, the new giants. Uh, I want to get into a little bit more about kind of like Mormonism as a whole and like it being uh, a part of American history and like what are, what are some of the tenets of mormonism because I, I don't think a lot of people even understand or believe or know what the principal yeah. ideas of mormonism are yeah well i will say i'm not speaking for any church in particular i am an elder like i said in a smaller latter-day saint tradition uh called the elijah message church but basically mormonism i am a mormon scholar i write a lot of articles on mormonism so i feel safe uh talking about uh talking about this but um uh, basically um uh all 
Mormon traditions are united by a belief in the Book of Mormon, and basically a belief that there was a group of Israelites who came over to, to America, whether North America or South America, and that later Jesus himself came over either to North America or South America. Um, so the Book of Mormon is seen kind of as a sequel, as another testament in line with the tradition of the Bible. Now, in addition to that, there are a couple of other different Mormon scriptures. There's the Doctrine and Covenants, which are modern revelations that were given to Joseph Smith. Um, and then there is the Pearl of Great Price, which can, claims to contain ancient additional uh, scriptures about Moses and about Abraham. Um, when there's a whole uh, it's very interesting um, kind of story behind those. So Joseph Smith found papyri uh, that he claims to have uh, translated um, a lost story of Abraham from. Uh, modern Egyptologists uh, reject his translation of it. There's a whole controversy. There's a whole um, discussion around that. Um, in any case, uh, Mormon theology, in some ways, uh, it's very similar to traditional Christian theology. I think my own denomination is very similar to your mainstream Christian theology, um, only that we believe in a few more scriptures than uh, regular Christians do. Um, but there's also a belief um, that all Mormon traditions hold in something called the power of the priesthood. Um, and by priesthood, um, all uh, male members of the church are ordained to the priesthood, and you receive a type of divine power. And in traditional Mormonism, the priesthood allows you to progress from this life to the next and build a whole, a, literally a whole world of your own with all the people that you love and care about on that world. Now, my own tradition doesn't believe in that, uh, but we do believe uh, that uh, with the priesthood, there is some type of spiritual power conveyed uh, with that. Um, so that would be a big difference between uh, mainstream Christianity and uh, the Mormon tradition. Yeah. It kind of has the vibe of uh, like a, a Gnosticism or like a type of mystic, yes, uh, yep. esoteric. It's very esoteric, you know, and just a lot of the 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 sense of just it's these golden tablets. You know, there's a little bit of yeah. hidden layers, and uh, it's exactly. it's really and, really fascinating, honestly. Yeah, and the temples which um, are important to all Latter Day Saint traditions, but especially uh, with the Salt Lake, uh, the the main group of Mormons. Uh, the temples have all of this type of esoteric ritual and esoteric practice, which is designed to basically uh, help you in your journey to the next world. Do you think uh, the Mormons are <laughs> responsible for a lot of uh, the, the namings of different cities and locations and rivers that we see? And that's why we see this like Egyptian connection also with uh, some of the names in, in the towns. I know a lot of part of Utah is is kind of set up to kind of represent like these different biblical characters and in, in the names yeah. and stuff in in that I, whole I think, area. I think in Utah, yeah, that I think in Utah that's definitely uh Mormon influence. But we have to remember, interestingly enough, this is always something that fascinates me. A lot of these biblical names don't even come from European Christians who settled here. A lot of these biblical names for places and stuff come from Native American traditions themselves. Mm. Um and there are a lot of Native Americans um, like the Black Irish Cherokee that Rick Osmond talks about, um, who claim to be descended directly from the lost tribes of Israel. So that's not all Mormon. Some of it's Mormon, uh, but that's not even uh, basically uh, white Christians. Uh, that is from Native American tradition. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. We don't talk about that too much because yeah. Christianity is not supposed to be here until Columbus. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I know, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I've heard uh, people talk about uh, when, when like the slaves came over on the, on the ships or whatnot, they would sing a song of uh, Kumbaya and yes. the Kumbaya actually goes back to Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are Hebrew. Uh, those are Hebrew terms. Yeah. Um, so really interesting. Um, not too surprising because uh, where the slave trade was, you also had what are known as Falasha Jews or uh, African oh. Jews who were in uh, that area. So okay. Um, okay. very, yeah. So they would have known Hebrew, um, but very interesting. Like I said, everything's connected. Yeah. It's fascinating, man. Um, so uh, Rowan, did you have any more questions while I uh, think over here? Or? Uh, yeah. So uh I mean, there, there's a lot, but let me let me try to uh, <clears throat> try to hone in on on this one because uh, I'm, I'm I have a very specific uh, side research that I'm trying to get into, and there's you have a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of biblical knowledge and Latin knowledge and alchemical stuff. So I, w- I want to know kind of your opinion on what you yeah. think the Renaissance period, and this is kind of off topic. I do apologize, but no problem. Uh, so the Renaissance period and, and the original like Gothic cathedral building era, you know, was very, very important. And obviously has like a lot of very heightened religious and artistic backing of it but also symbolic too i'm curious what what you think and actually what's the mormon connection i know like in the sense of like the renaissance period mormonism like hasn't been wasn't around yet right but but there's a very similar emphasis so with mormon temples um the architecture the very architecture of the temple uh has a spiritual or symbolic meaning so it's not just a building that people come into uh, to to worship or to pray, but the very structure of the temple itself is to harmonize with this overall purpose of uh, basically exaltation and uh, becoming basically your own god um, in another world after this life. So um, the Renaissance um, is interesting because you have a similar thing going on uh, with the churches. So a lot of these um, churches. You know, we think of Christian medieval churches as just arising in the Middle Ages, um, and part of that's true, but these were on sacred sites before uh, that were sacred to kind of the pagans and to uh, earlier, earlier before Christianity came on the scene. And Christians recognized that these places had spiritual power, that they had spiritual potency, and they built their churches um, on them. So um, a lot of uh, Renaissance architecture I would say, just like the Mormon temple was designed to maximize the spiritual potential of these places. I think the best freaking example that you see of this, this isn't a Renaissance example, it is a medieval example, are the Templar churches. They're literally yeah. like human DNA and stuff like that to kind of reflect this 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 kind of um, this uh, spiritual merger between the divine um, and uh, the human and to reflect this idea that divinity itself is within the human so they're like they're they're basically inseparable and i think you see that very very well in the templar churches both their architecture and where they're built so a lot of templar places 
were built on old druid sites yeah um kind of to uh kind of to uh get this 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 spiritual power that they thought the, they thought that these sites had if that makes sense yeah definitely i i think that's kind of you know the 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 real purpose of these buildings was to like absolutely like you know encapsulate all of the resonance that they could from an area and yeah. it leads me to another question because i've been looking into dowsing lately in the history of it um and it's really fascinating but do you think joseph smith was a dowser um there's definitely a tradition that he was um so he seems to have been in his um, in his youth, before he uh, found the gold plates. Wow. Um, and so, and people, yeah, it's controversial because, you know, if you talk to somebody who uh, believes Joseph Smith is a prophet and you say he was a dowser, um, for some people that that, that calls into question their faith, it's, <laughs> not, it's not really a problem with me. Um, like, I, I don't, I mean, I think that, you know, the magical world and uh, the natural world kind of go hand in hand. So it, that's never been really a problem. With there me, is no severance people, for some people it is, but I think that there's actual evidence. I mean, if you read um, some of the affidavits of people, um, many of them weren't very nice to Joseph Smith, um, but it seems to have been, uh, it seems to be historical fact that he was um, in fact a dowser. Nice. Yeah. It, it kind of has that vibe when you hear, you know, someone sticking there, they, they say, Dowsing is used for finding water underground and finding yeah. minerals underground, and he just yeah. Well, he used to try and find you know. Um, he used to try and find um, uh, gold and treasure uh, for people as well as water. His family was poor, so he tried to you know find water. The dowser. Yeah, yeah. And then that, that's the thing is like it's there's so many people who try dowsing that can't get into it or they're not you know allowed to like be in touch or in tune with that energy or whatever um and you know so it is make you kind of like a prophet in that sense you know you you're more in yeah. touch with the spiritual side or the earth and you know battery yeah. or what have you and people like he claimed he had a reputation for being a pretty damn good dowser so you know for me that's just proof that you know he did have a prophetic ability yeah absolutely i can dig wow. that yeah um you mentioned bat, bat mitzvah earlier what what do you what does that word mean i know what the the thing uh the the tradition is but what is the word actually does it break down into other things anything um, else so bat mitzvah i believe is daughter of i think it's from mitzvah daughter of the commandment and then bar mitzvah is son in aramaic so son of the commandment so it's basically when you become a member of the community in uh, in Jewish life, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, we had Zertus on the show, and he said uh, "bot" is a representation uh, in, in symbolism. It's a moon symbol. Is, is it can true? be? Yes, uh, um, it means daughter in Hebrew, but you also have um, the bot kol, the daughter of the voice. Um, who and then uh, you also have. Uh, Bot, um, who is a moon goddess in ancient Near Eastern mythology. So they're all ah, uh, connected. Yeah. Interesting. All yeah. right. What about uh, talismanic use in, uh, in Mormonism besides maybe dowsing? Is there, is there a, do you know any history of like this, like important esoteric jewelry or talismans of sorts to maybe extend the consciousness? No, not really. I mean, there is um, the, and I don't know too much about this. My own tradition doesn't practice this. There is the notion there's a Mormon underwear. I know it's going to sound very kind of weird, <laughs> um, but you wear it as kind of a way to 
in tune with uh, to, with God. Um, so in that sense, it kind of serves the same purpose as a talisman, but there's not really a um, specific talisman in Mormonism. The closest thing that you'll get is the golden plates itself, interestingly. And what I mean by that is that the golden plates themselves, for many Mormons, uh, the golden plates from which the Book of Mormon is translated is seen as kind of a sacred object in and of itself, proof that uh, God still speaks to humanity. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I'd like to give me a pair of those. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to get into aliens a little bit. Uh, are, are you kind of a proponent of like ancient astronaut theory? Are you, do you, Absolutely. Are you a- I don't know if the giants themselves, so the giants of North America, I don't think they were aliens. I, clearly, I think that they were um, human. They were from the Near East, as I mentioned in my book. Um, but yes, I think that there are numerous examples of ancient alien visitation and uh, that they helped out in civilization. Now, I think the Bible um, itself, this book right here, is uh, a, a, a basically a documentation of a lot of ancient alien visitations. So the Malachim, or the angels that are mentioned in it, I think some of them would be classified as UFOs today. And then we have a specific UFO encounter in the book of Ezekiel, which a lot of people have talked about. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's also these types of things going on in the Mormon uh, tradition? Yes. yes. Uh, because so, I um, remember one story of a tree that they uh, went to and they were trying to get the other uh, brother to go with him to the tree, but he didn't want to go. He kind of stayed behind. And then they ended up seeing like a ship in the sky and people in the ship kind of pointing at them and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Mormon uh, legends, um, people on the moon and stuff like that in the Mormon people on the moon. First off, um, Joseph Smith uh, gets the golden plates from a dude named Moroni. Yeah. And if you ever read that encounter, um, it sounds really similar to a UFO abduction. In mm-hmm. fact, Joseph Smith is burnt out. He's worn out. He has no strength after he meets Moroni, similar to kind of what you get in some uh, UFO um, accounts where the radiation comes and it hits the dude, and the dude is just knocked out and just oh. can't do anything for a while, just completely drained of energy. So very similar to that. And in- and doesn't Moroni have like a color associated with him too? Yes, he's blazing white. Oh, he's blazing like a white? Star. Similar okay. to what the the what the Anunnaki are described as the seraphs beaming of light, just pure light. Okay. Um, and, I thought he glowed, uh, glowed green. No. No, I don't. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't go. He doesn't glow green. Okay. Um, but he is described as as a being of light. Um, now he can you can see him. You can see his clothing and everything. But he he is pure light. So. Uh, very interesting there. It reminds the me book of a ghost I saw when I was a kid. I saw these these ghosts that were working out in the field, and they were just pure, pure light. Oh, like yeah, interesting. Yeah. And he see he encounters Moroni in the field. He encounters Moroni in a in the sacred in the sacred grove. So um, in the grove. Yeah. Yeah. So trees. Trees. Yep. Does it Bunch talk about what kind of trees? No, I've been to the Sacred Grove several times. It's actually really relaxing. Um, it's just like a, it's, there's, it's farmland, and then there's like a forest, and you can walk out into it. Is it wow. What kind of trees are they? Do you know? I don't know. Just your regular, typical forest trees. Pine? pine? Are they pine trees? I don't know. I honestly don't. <laughs> I always go in April, and the trees aren't in bloom yet. Okay. Um, 
So there's a, like, I didn't, when I was reading your book, also, uh, you talk about a person named Mormon. I didn't know that there was a person named Mormon. Um, yeah, and then, Mormon. yeah, and interestingly, like this whole Moore man, the Moors, and uh, men of Moore. Yeah, and then like uh, Moroni is even more Oni. Yeah, and and then so you kind of almost have this connection of of Moors with Mormonism, and I'm wondering if there if you know of any connections between like uh, these Moors that we know of from like the Mediterranean area and uh, connection to uh, Mormonism and Moroni and uh, Mormon. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have that's something I haven't looked into that much, but Mormon and Moroni, those are um those are names that they inherit from the ancient Near East. Um so and the Moors from uh, you know, Spain, they're Muslims who have uh have, who have Near Eastern background Muslims. Uh, from Arabia. So there might be a possible connection there. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um and, well because that's why I asked about the bot and if there's a connection to the moon there, uh, because what he says, when I, when I asked Zertus about the name Borea, could it be Moria? He said, well, yeah, in Arabic, the, the M could be a B because of the bot and yeah. it could be, have that moon association. And then, uh, as we know, uh, Thoth, uh, has the association with the moon also and, and the moon calendar, so yep. we we have another association with moon and calendar, and then even now with the people Bot of Moor and and, and yeah. Borea, and so there's there's another connection there. I've, I've been trying to expound on all these different ideas, and and that's why we kind of have uh, you on the show. You're the last person uh, for this month, so I'm trying to uh, uh, kind of connect all the dots between the other guests that we've had through. Um, the month yeah. and last month and try to connect it all into this a little bit more. So, Well, linguistically, I think a lot of things are connected. I mean, things that you don't ever expect to be connected. So Latin, for example, actually has its origin in uh, Indian language. So uh, Sanskrit, oh, there are a lot of words that are very really? similar. So I think when it comes to language, so many things are connected and so many, uh, so many connections, you know, can legitimately uh, be made. So I think, you know, like I said, it's, it's all, it's all connected. You know, we we don't. It, in contrast to what modern archaeologists and modern scholarship would say, uh, modern anthropology would say. You know, we don't just. You know, cultures don't just emerge by themselves. We're all very interconnected with one another. Stand on the backs of giants, right? Yeah, yeah literally. You're, <laughs> you're you're a linguist, and you, you're a associate, uh, or you know how to speak uh, many languages. What languages do you know how to uh, speak? Oh, uh, ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, Latin, uh, German. Um, I can read French. I can read Spanish. I can read Portuguese. I'm not very good at speaking any of them at all. Mm. Um, so but do, do you know, do you know like the origin of language and where it came from and, and which, which languages kind of stem from other ones and maybe where the, the prototypical language, uh, came from at some point? Yeah, I would say India and uh, the Near East. So the term is there's a very interesting story about how we got the term A. So if a? you flip A around, yes, the letter A. Um, a. If you flip the letter A around, you um, it looks like a goat. 
So um, with goats, like the ram's head, like Aries. Ram's head, yes, yes, and that's exactly where A came from. So in Proto-Semitic, the A looks like a goat's head, same as in some other languages. And so this was people trying to figure out how to say something, and they they drew on this image of a goat, and that became uh, the first vowel, basically the first letter of uh, the alphabet for for many uh, for many languages. So very interesting the history of of linguistic development. I had uh, this I had this thought one night when I was in a hotel room, lying in bed because I, I I'm trying to come up with a series to like demystify or de occult the alphabet because yeah. our modern alphabet you know obviously is it's got a lot of these like symbolic ties to it you know and a lot of things yeah. that most people just don't really understand including yeah. myself that's why i want to learn and do more research but um so but i had this thought i was like oh wait 26 letters you know that's uh that's that's the um the zodiacal uh, wheel twice and I was like it reminds me of tarot you know you have the light side you have the dark side just like mm-hmm. the zodiac wheel you have yep. the six signs of light six signs of dark and yep. then but it's it's twice and so I was like there has to be two letters associated to each one and then I thought it was an original idea and I googled it and it's there's already these like maps of like the zodiac <laughs> and the alphabet lined yeah. up like that but I think but, a lot of the alphabets can be linked al- al- alphabet letters can be linked to specific animals or things. So I think B, for example, um, I know in uh, Hebrew that's bait, which is like the same as a house. Um, but um, I think you know bull could also be an, uh, mm-hmm. one of the motivators, uh, one of the things that inspires letter B um, as well. So um, yeah, it's interesting. That's something I would love to if I ever had uh, some time on my hands just to study and mo- study more in depth. Do you, do you have more of uh, of those with the letters, like their association? Maybe just just with the vowels. What we did A. Do you, is there any association with E? Uh, um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I don't, those are only, those are the only two that are coming to my mind. Okay, um, okay. As soon as we get off the show, I'm sure I'll think of some more. But I yeah, know yeah. those two as a fact. Yeah, just in the development of languages. B, uh, B. So then C, because that's Gemini is next. I mean, because B goes into Taurus. It goes Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Mm -hmm. Leo, and like you said, you got Aries with the shape of the goat. B is a bull. Yeah, yeah. And then then Gemini is the twin. So I'm trying. Seems like an H. Castor and Polex. Remember, those are the twins. Oh, mythology. See, Castor. Oh shit! There you go. Yeah. yeah, this is yeah. this is a big one. We we're gonna we'll we'll go we'll dive into this, Dan. Trust. I, I actually kind of forgot about that whole <laughs> zodiacal thing until we brought it up just now. Adam, uh, you're awesome, yeah, man. Awesome. You got a very big like very big understanding of things. And then the whole, you know, like six or seven different ancient languages also on top of that, man. You got it going on, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I try. So <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And then yeah. teaching kids Latin, man, we, what kind of school is that? Because we definitely didn't have Latin as an option in my school. It's actually, I teach at a public school and they decided to read, they used to have Latin years ago and then they stopped. So they're trying to revive the program. So I've been teaching here about two or three years now. Hmm. A, a lot of people will talk about uh, how the Bible is passed down, handed down, but the, the text stays true. Uh, but when uh, in your book, even you, you show Greek and uh, what I think is Arabic, or 
it, what what languages are you showing in uh, uh it's hebrew and latin hebrew and latin and so even when you kind of go through and decipher each one each one is there's a slight variation on mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. english translation of each yep. one do you think like maybe because of like uh like telephone the telephone game like some of these translations have kind of taken on like a different form of themselves and they're not yeah, well, really trans- closely related to the original source yeah well every translation is an interpretation so you know even you know, I always tell students you know it's fascinating there's a whole philosophical esoteric uh, rabbit hole you could go down here but you know you never quite get to the original meaning whatever you read in translation is always an interpretation Mm-hmm. And even when you're translating something, you're translating it based on uh, what you think the word means in English. Um, so you never quite get to the source. So the 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 main text always it always eludes us. So I say this about the Bible. You know, people will say, "Oh, I have the King James Bible. I have the Word of God." But you know, I say the King James is translated from the Greek and the Hebrew, and it's based on our what we think the English of uh, these terms in Hebrew and in Greek means. So we never actually get to the original text um, itself. So I would say that the real, the, the, the early Bible, the original Bible is a text that always eludes us. And there's no real original Bible uh, because all we have are manuscripts that have been passed down uh, to us, various different manuscripts, hmm. uh, which many of them uh, contain their own errors and problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can dig it. That's super true. And, you know, I think there's, there's something, you know, humbling to that too. And people need to really try to put that yeah. into perspective and in their yeah. lives. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Do you got any, uh, uh, more, uh, connections for us, Adam? I think we're pretty much, you know, they're pretty much c- c- connected uh, out, but I know you're, you're, you're a quick talker. Usually, you know, I have to, I got questions ready, yeah, but like, I think that you know all quick. of this again shows kind of the diffusionist nature of uh, of the world. You know, um, yeah. nothing originates on its own in a bubble. Uh, we're all influenced by each other. I think this is an important lesson to learn, um, especially at a time where uh, we're so we're just so polarized about so many things. You know, we're all connected, and we all need to get along, mm-hmm. and we're all related to one another because you know. If, uh, you know, if I yeah, fall, man. you know, eventually uh, you fall. Same was with the Giants. You know, they lost their spiritual knowledge, and because they lost it, we lost ours. So, but hopefully, I think shows like this and, you know, uh, just uh, the type of research that, you know, people such as yourselves do, uh, we'll, we'll get and, that spiritual and knowledge And you, back. sir. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I have, I, I, have, I have a question if we're closing out here. Let me. Uh, I have one more too. So. Okay, cool, cool. Let me. I want to. Well, okay, I have two, but one of them is just from earlier with the alphabet. Uh, what's your. Uh, what would you say is like the most important alphabets of, of time to our, our modern history now that uh, if people wanted to like kind of have some fun looking into that you might want. Uh, yeah, you think? I would say the. I mean, the Latin alphabet is basically almost the same as ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so influential in a lot of areas, and it's really kind of what I would say, uh, kind of the linchpin between really ancient languages like Sanskrit, going way back in the day, and modern languages, because so many what modern Western languages like English, for example, use a lot of Latin terminology. And when you look at French and Spanish, a lot of their words are basically straight up Latin because they're Romance languages and they come directly from Latin. So I would say Latin is the most important. 
Yeah, well, cool. I'm not just saying that as a, because I'm a Latin teacher. <laughs> Sign up for my classes. <laughs> um, what about, okay, so, you know, we obviously have a lot of, you know, readers, um, and by readers, I mean, like, psychic readers, like Casey, who we discussed earlier, and, you know, Gregory Little, who's done a lot of research modernly on, on Atlantis and everything. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have a lot of literature and people touching on Lumeria. And though it seems like there might be a even bigger piece of history that's connected to this Lumerian land, yeah. um, it, you know, like just there's so there's so many signs. There's as many signs as there was in Atlantis as there is Lemuria, mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. opinion. So what what is your connection maybe to Mormon uh, thoughts on that? Um, Lemuria is, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's not as much research. I know Greg Little has done some research on it, um, but people haven't touched on it as much as they do Atlantis. I think Atlantis, um, also because there are two great, uh, Disney movies on um, Atlantis, The Lost Continent, which is <laughs> one of the greatest films that's ever been made. Um, it, uh, I think people, people know Atlantis more, uh, from that than they know Lemuria, but Lemuria, like you said, um, is just as important. And some people have posited that Lemuria might've been located here in the united in uh north america oh yeah i can I, I i i we live in california so it's just like there's a lot of folklore around that you know this yeah that mount shasta's hollowed out and that's where yeah. the uh lemurians are you know laying off their love uh information yeah. their love language and there's some native american names i know that sound very similar to lemuria it's not a direct correlation but very similar Ooh, okay, that's like, cool. Like, like which ones? <laughs> I think there's a uh, Lemoore or something. And it's not French. It's mm. Native American, but is a name that sounds, you know, oh, this could be Lemuria and stuff like that. So I yeah. think those traditions exist. Hmm. Wow, interesting. Uh, my my final question was: uh, I just uh, talked to Emmanuel Kingman. Uh, I know you're. Uh, oh yes, you're familiar yep. with him. Yeah, you've been on yep, his show on before. Show a, a little couple months back. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know, but he has this whole idea of the millennial kingdom of God and a thousand-year yeah. reign, uh, maybe around uh, six or seven hundred to sixteen hundred, or or even a little bit later to the into the eighteen hundreds. Um, what are, what is your thoughts on maybe like the millennial reign of God? Do you think that he has actually in fact came back as was prophesized or do you think that is still yet to come my own view is that that's yet to come so um it's interesting though because in christian theology there is something called pre-eterism um which is that jesus came back around 70 ce mm -hmm. uh, right before the temple uh was destroyed by the romans um which would work well because jesus says you know come back the temple would be destroyed. Um, so people would say that um, after that time is the reign of God on earth. But I don't think we've gotten there personally. Uh, the reign of God for me, um, it's very, it's, it's a theme that's very important in my own tradition because we believe that um, a temple, I can go into this a lot more, but I'll just summarize it. There'll be a temple built in Zion. Zion is an independence, Missouri. Um, and we believe that that will be a place where there will be perfect peace and harmony. I don't think we're there yet. Clearly, at least in my tradition, the temple has not been built yet. So I think that that's something uh, to expect in the future, but something that I do hope for as a religious person. Why, why Missouri? 
Yes, that was the spot designated by Joseph Smith, who actually believed, this is going down another rabbit hole, that where Independence, Missouri is now is once where the biblical Garden of Eden was. So not in the Near East, Whoa. but in North America. Mm. Yeah, okay. And that's yeah. like pretty smack dab in the middle there, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. And it's actually inter- a beautiful area. It's built up now and it looks like crap, but... <laughs> It back in, I mean, back in Joseph Smith's time, it's that is actually you can you can see even now where it was a very very lush, uh, foresty and beautiful area. The the St. Louis, Missouri has the big arch too. Yes, and uh, so and it's Saint, the wing of the heart ceremony. Saint, it's a St. Louis, uh, so it, that's interesting too. But uh, there's this like old sci-fi show called defiance and it takes place yes, in I love missouri defiance. oh you yes, do it's a west like sci-fi western i love that show finally oh, somebody sci-fi western even nice. knows what i'm talking about i Ooh, tell yeah, people all yeah. the time i think that's such a great show it, it it portrays aliens and uh people from other worlds in such a uh interesting way yeah. more so yeah, than like just the like different, the classes and cultures are very really yeah it's very cool because you really get to see like the different cultural uh, type of ideas of these aliens more so than they're just like bloodthirsty monster type aliens yeah. or something yeah. like that. So Space I like Westerns the way it's are my favorite. It, uh, too. I love it. it I really should have lasted like three seasons, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I thought it was a great show. It was so good. That's and, more than Firefly got. That's and, true. That's true. Firefly didn't give, even get a season. So yeah, <laughs> but it takes place in uh st louis missouri where the arch is and it's kind of a rebuilt civilization that encompasses these alien people and so it's interesting that there's that significance in the mormon culture of of this being like the possible eden and where the temple might be rebuilt in the future uh so azorn did you notice any of those types of themes in there too when you watched not on the show actually i was looking for you know the expanse has um that show is another great show it has like these evil mormons who the butcher is working for <laughs> really? and they're trying to build like this super huge temple spaceship yeah and the butcher's like killing people like to get them to build a spaceship uh but i didn't see any i, I haven't seen any mormons in uh in defined i need to watch that show again <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah i'm gonna really watch good. it i put it in my notes i was like yo space western you got me hooked already <laughs> it's really good it's really it's, it's really, really so good. good the stories are great i i really love the character development that they do with each alien uh race and they're kind of like their customs and their beliefs is really fascinating yeah. Wow, I'm going to check it out. Yo, I want to say real quick, since we're talking about St. Louis, that a lot of people don't know unless you've been in the arches, but they they have a legitimate uh, weighing of the heart ceremony scale, you know, to represent, you know, who can go on like they – they have a oh, scale there, yeah. Wow. Inside the that's arches, interesting too. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, I mean, that lets on a whole other level of symbolism as to what these arches are and why, and you know, if it's, um, you know, kind of relating to like the because I, I learned that from our buddy Chad Stumke, and uh, you know, he does the esoteric layout of Detroit, and there's kind of like a similar, you know, thing there. There's like these little, you know, like um like a ring or a hoop, or whatever, a portal basically. Yeah. And it shoot, you know, in theory can shoot in energy through. And you have that in the St. Louis arches, you have that in the, the London wheel, right? The London eye. 
Yeah. Uh, yep. Where it's like these portal energy. It's like there's like this etheric energy coming through and all these esoteric uh, architects understood that. And so they build these things to maybe contort the energy or to hopefully bring it yeah. back and build this yeah. type of uh, special, um, special place again. Uh, are are you familiar too with uh, Susan B. Martinez? No, no, no. She wrote like the Cherokee Little People. I think she wrote that or something to that effect. Uh, I'll where, check it out. Where she talks about like uh, little people were all around and they were like the spiritual beings, and then uh, the Atlanteans needed them for their spirituality, and that's why the the cher- cherubim uh, or the cherub is like. Uh, in the hierarchy of the angels, I think is like number one. Yeah. Uh, and then and the even cherub is a small being. Yeah. 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 And then even in like the Parthenon in Tennessee, uh, you have uh, the the Athena in there, and she's holding a little cherubim in her hand. Yeah. yeah. I need to visit there. I'm gonna I'm gonna go there one day. Yeah, I, I went there. I checked it out. It's pretty interesting place, man. It's pretty uh, all inspiring, especially when you go inside the inner inner chamber. You're just like, yeah. oh my god! It was it's so big in there and bright and built for giants. Pretty amazing, yeah. The reflexology <laughs> person in me really wants to go there one day. So yeah, God willing, yeah. it'll happen. Yes. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, we appreciate your time, Adam. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this was great. We were able to connect. I think a, a lot of different interesting things. Oh, and shout out to uh, Slick Dissident Gabe. Uh, that was gonna. I was gonna ask about that. Uh, basically, he does tarot tarot tories, and he puts like the tarot cards over the United States, and he can um, see like different uh, interesting things that correlate and, to the tarot cards the Zo- Zo- and the zodiac wheel as well. Yeah, and the zodiac. And uh, interestingly, he kind of thinks that uh, the whole Mississippi River and like everything in like the Ohio Valley and, and Kentucky and everything is almost a, a, a mirror image of Egypt and the Nile Valley and those civilizations. Yeah, well, a lot of those mounds and stuff originate in the uh, next to the Mississippi River. Yeah. So, uh, very, um, and you know, it goes all the way, you know, Kentucky um into ohio so uh-huh. it's all in a grid yeah yeah interesting man so, so cool all right thank you uh go ahead and tell the people where they can find you what you got going on and yeah um so you can find me um like you said on uh instagram adam the giant guy 2019 um i contribute also to ancient american magazine haven't contributed as much lately because i'm in library science school i'm trying to get my master's in library science um, I did have a recent book come out, Relics of Babel. It's on oh. Amazon. Um, it's a, um, it's basically a transcribed lecture that I gave last year uh, for this conference I went to on the Michigan Relics. So if you're interested in ancient American history, you can read that as well. Um, and I'm also uh, on Facebook. I have a Latin tutoring site, Lingua Classica, on Facebook, as well as my own personal site. Uh, feel free to, to friend me. Ooh, nice. Thank you, Adam. We appreciate you, man. Thank you yeah, for your time. Great. Thank you so much. You're yeah. the best, man. <laughs> thank you. All right. All right. Thank you, Fire Tribe, for joining us. If you're not done with that, wake uh. up. Yeah.